Well, good morning and welcome and Happy New Year. We are on day seven of a new year. We're all getting into new rhythms. I'm getting into new rhythms. But this morning, for this first Sunday in January, I have a different sermon. This is different than what I would normally do. I've actually never talked about this subject before. But I thought that this was a good time to do it. So if you're visiting with us today, hear me say this is a little bit unusual, but I'm doing it for a purpose. I'm, I'm being intentional, and it's for a reason. But I'll, I'll introduce it this way. In March of 2023, the year that we just concluded, GPC celebrated its 30th anniversary as a congregation. We are 30 years old as of March of 2023. And if you were here that day, you may recall that we had a luncheon as we celebrated the Lord's faithfulness. And we heard testimony that day by video from our founding pastor, Kurt Robbie, who shared with us some of the stories and the context of how this particular church was formed, the circumstances that led to people leaving one church to come and form another church. And there's important context there. There are important circumstances to that history. We also heard from Joe Lax, who was an original charter member, and he shared some of his experience and memories of what happened and what it took to form a new congregation. And it was good and it was right for us to revisit that so that we understood what happened before us to have this church that believes and practices what it believes and practices. True? Well, did you know that in December of 2023, just four weeks ago, that marked the 50th anniversary of the Presbyterian Church in America? which is the denomination that we belong to. And we didn't have an occasion to recognize that or to speak to it because we were finishing a series in Hosea and preparing for Advent, and I didn't want to take a week as we needed to do some things. But as we have this first week in January, what I would like to do this morning on this occasion is to revisit the why and the what and the how that led to the formation of the denomination that we are a part of, the church that we belong to. Now, we're going to do that this week, and we have a few other housekeeping matters in January. We will be um, electing new church officers in the weeks ahead, and so we'll have some sermons that prepare us to vote on those church officers, what the character and nature of an elder and a deacon are. At the end of January, the plan, though, is to begin a series for the winter and spring in the book of 1 Peter. So any of you who like to read ahead, just know where I'm going, and you can be studying 1 Peter on your own. But for this morning, I would like to revisit the who we are the what we do, and some of the historical and theological circumstances that led to the founding of our denomination. And how from day one, the PCA had a vision to make it salty in the world. To be salt. 
to be salty, to have a flavor in the world. That is to be a healthy witness that was faithful, that was true, and that was obedient for the glory of God. So that's where we're going this morning. There are many texts I will read this morning, but the first is a short one. It's a simple one. It is a familiar one. And you've actually heard from it already this morning. But listen again to Luke chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness... How can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That is some of that strong and confusing speak that Jesus has. I mean, we don't want our children talking about manure, right? Potty talk, bathroom talk. This is Jesus talking. And he says, either you're salty or you're less than manure. Doesn't say you're manure, he says you're less than manure. This is hard, this is confusing, but he's talking about his people, he's talking about his church. And who we are to be in the world. Let's pray that God would help us rightly understand and apply His Word. Lord, would You speak to us this morning as Your church, as Your people. And Lord, would You make us to be as salty, as healthy as You would have us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a different sermon for me for sure, but we'll begin in a familiar way. So, a few years ago, I became interested in state mottos of all things. Um, did you know that every one of the 50 states has a motto? The motto is a little summary, a little bottom line summary of what each of the states either thinks that they're known for, or hopes is what they will be known for, right? And there's a difference between those two things. So, for instance, the state of California. The motto for the state of California is Eureka. Eureka! Which comes from the Greek word, which means, I found it. And so we would say, Eureka, I found it. Now, why would California do that? There's a context, right? The gold rush. Eureka, we found gold. So California wants to be known as the place where you can strike it rich. And so they are known for Eureka. That's their motto that sums up who they are and what they are known for. Other states, um, all the mottos are, are interesting. And you can Google that. Mottos of the 50 states. Parents, it might be a fun thing to do with your, with your children. And then determine what your motto would be for your family. Hey, there's some application. Kansas, the state of Kansas, their motto is to the stars through adversity, which sounds to me like something Buzz Lightyear might say, but, but it also seems to be preparing their people that, hey, we want to aim high, but it's going to be hard getting there, right? There's wisdom in that. There's truth in that. 
The state of South Carolina motto, we could give out bonus points this morning for any of our students who know the state of South Carolina motto. Uh, Doom Spiro Sparrow, which means, while I breathe, I hope. Which seems to mean, man, as long as I got a breath in me, I got hope, right? I like that. That's pretty robust. And then the state of North Carolina is probably my favorite motto of all. That is, esse quam videri, which means to be rather than to seem, which seems to mean really be the thing. Don't pretend to be the thing. Really be the thing. Don't seem like it. Don't fake it. Don't go through the motions, but really be that thing. So mottos are great, aren't they? They're they're little summaries that capture a vision. They're a bottom line summary of what a state wants to be or hopes to be known for or whatever else might have a motto. Well, did you know that the Presbyterian Church in America has had a motto since day one? Did you know that? We have a motto. Our church has the PCA's motto. Did you know that the PCA motto is on your bulletin and has been on your bulletin right here in the highlighted portion. It has been there for years. Archie, I don't know how many years. I don't know if it's 10, if it's 15. I know it's more than three and a half because it precedes me. But we have a motto. And we've talked about that motto in our officer training. And it was in doing officer training in past weeks that I concluded, you know what? We probably need to talk about our motto with our church. Because it's rich, it's meaningful, there's a lot of history, a lot of context. So this morning, three points to the sermon, and they all come from our motto, and I want us to understand and appreciate the calling of our church, the aim, the focus, the desire of our church to be true to the motto. So what is the motto? It's quite simply this. Faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. A threefold motto that is the vision of why our church exists, why our denomination existed. More history than I can cover, but we're going to try to touch on some important key aspects. Don't want this to sound like a history lecture because it's not. But it is more that than what you're used to hearing in a sermon from me. So our first point, faithful to the Scriptures. To be faithful to the Bible. We already heard this morning in our reflection, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of our God endures forever. That is the Old Testament doctrine of Scripture. The grass withers, the flowers fall, everything that's created collapses, even our very bodies. But the Word of God endures, it lasts forever. That's the Old Testament view of the Bible. And then in the New Testament, the doctrine of Scripture we're given from 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God 
may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's our doctrine of the Bible, that it is divinely inspired. It's given of God. It's really the doctrine of divine expiration because the word there is like you and I use the word expiration. God breathes out His word to His people. Now, the history and context that I'm speaking about this morning in the formation of our church, it precedes me, it precedes my life. So this is the context of the 1960s into the early 1970s. I was born in 1970. And so the context that I'm speaking of is not a context that I lived in. It's a context that I have heard about and read about and been examined on. And I'm sharing that with you, and I don't want it to just be history. I want you to hear this as what birthed us, what led to our existence as a church. And the historical context was this. The Southern Church in the late 1960s, the PC, the Presbyterian Church U.S., was in a time of theological drift. It was a time of strife. It was a time of intense politics within the church. It was a tug of war over whether or not we would believe the kinds of things I just read from the Bible about the Bible, or have we become more intellectual and sophisticated and educated? And now we've moved beyond thinking that the Bible is the Word of God. That was the tension and the strife and the conflict within the Presbyterian church in the U.S. And there were a group of men, of ministers, who began to hear the teachings, the influence of the church, and they said, that is not our doctrine of Scripture. That is not what we have believed. We're drifting. We're drifting with the times, and we have lost that unique doctrine of God's revelation in His Word. And at that time, some of those men galvanized in the midst of strife. And they began to write, they began to plead, they began to pray for faithfulness in the church. And one of those early men, his name was Kenneth Keyes. You can Google that and find many of the resources I'll quote from and read from this morning. But they started a a journal called Concerned Presbyterians in the PCUS. This is the Southern Church. And in 1964, they began to articulate their concerns about how the church of the day had drifted. That's your left. They had drifted to the left. And they started to articulate their concerns. And one of those concerns read like this. We are concerned because the integrity and authority of the Word of God is being questioned by dubious theories of revelation in the literature of our denominational church. And that was was the current context of the day. We're concerned that you're drifting from the Bible. You're undermining the authority of God's Word. We're losing integrity as a church. The heart of their conviction of the conservative, faithful few came from passages like Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where Jesus on the road to Emmaus said that He began with Moses and all the prophets. 
And he explained to them what was said in all of the Scriptures concerning himself. That passage where Jesus reveals the Old Testament is all about me. It was all about me. And so these young, this this small band of pastors that galvanized said, we cannot drift from our understanding that the Bible is the Word of God. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's what God has given us. The Westminster Standards, which were the standards of that church at the time, its doctrine of Scripture was expressed like this. The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And so the context and the tension of the day was this. There were those who said, we still believe everything we said we always believed. We have not moved. And that was the few. But the many said, no, we've moved on. Don't be a simpleton. Don't be simple-minded. Don't be a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. We're educated, we're sophisticated, we've been enlightened. And that was the tension. Now that tension sounds very familiar to our current day, not within our denomination, but within the larger church and in the world. And so some of you have lived through that. You know that tension, you've experienced that tension, and that was at the heart of it all, was the doctrine of Scripture. So as that motto was first summarized, and it's believed that Ken Keyes is the one who first put a a draft of it together, they began with the doctrine of Scripture. We want to be a church that is faithful to the Scriptures. But then there's the next component of the motto, and that is that they wanted to be true to the Reformed faith. Well, now what does that mean? True to the Reformed faith. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 says... This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. And so that early band of brothers said, Look, we have inherited a faith that has proved to be wise, faithful, and true. We're at a crossroads, and some are wanting to go in a new direction with a different doctrine of Scripture. But we want to keep to the old paths. We believe that the old paths are good and faithful and true. And for them, those old paths had been articulated in a system of government and in a practice of faith that had been birthed from the Protestant Reformation. We don't have time to go into the depth of that at all, but you will remember that the Protestant Reformation was a time when a crossroads was met. There had been drift then, theological drift. But the Lord used Martin Luther to say, wait a minute, I'm reading a truth in God's Word that says salvation is by faith, not by works. And so Luther in God's providence is the one who who reminded the church and called the church to keep to the old path. That justification is by faith, not by works. 
and that we honor the Lord in the living of our life and Him alone. And so the Reformation was a, was a crossroads as well. And an old path was chosen then. And that was in the 1500s. Then in the mid-1600s, the faith was articulated and composed into a document called the Westminster Standards. That is our confession of faith, our larger catechism, our shorter catechism, which sought to condense the teaching of Scripture, the directives of Scripture, the vision of Scripture, into how a church would apply it how Christians would live it. And so for us, and for them, in the 1960s and 70s, the Westminster Confession of Faith was the playbook, so to speak. But what happened was, some were not playing by the rules. They drifted, as they did from Scripture, from the vows they had taken to operate by the standards that they had agreed to follow. And so what we have here is the theological drift from Scripture and then the drift from order, the drift from accountability, the drift to do their own thing and to make it up as they go along, which we've talked about in officer training is not what we do at GPC. You do know we don't make things up as we go along. We're in conformity and accountability to standards. And I as a pastor and every one of our officers our elders and our deacons have taken vows to not drift. To keep the vows. And those vows are done publicly. Those are the vows you're going to hear in the weeks to come when we eventually elect and install officers. Every officer in the PCA, because of this history that they were birthed out of, every officer in the PCA has to publicly state... I will keep my vows. I will uphold these standards. And they're even asked if your views should ever change. After you're an officer, you're obligated to come forward and make those known to your church, your session, and your presbytery. Now, why such seriousness seriousness about these vows? It's because they were birthed out of a time of drift. And the passion was, let's not drift again. Let's avoid drift. Let's plant an anchor in the old path and not drift away so easily. Now, will that prevent drift? Is that drift proof? No. But it's a good measure. It's a good effort to try to prevent it. To try to create a church that will last, that will endure over time. The historical context and what Ken Keyes wrote in summarizing all of this second point was this. We are concerned because some presbyteries no longer require loyalty to the Westminster Confession and catechisms. They were drifting from the fundamentals is how we would put it. And so this new church, they wanted to be faithful to the Scriptures They wanted to be true to their vows, true to the Reformed faith as they had received it. And I say all this, and we live in a world ourselves where many denominations around us, there's evidence of drift. There's rewriting or amending of the old paths into a new way, into new doctrines. Fill in the blank on issues of marriage, Gender, sexuality, in our culture, even in churches in our culture, 
there's clear evidence of drift from what God's Word has said. But the Presbyterian Church, by means of vows and commitment to the doctrine of Scripture, has sought to plant an anchor that we would not drift easily. It'll be hard for us to drift. We can still drift. But may it not be an easy drift. Maybe there's some fighting against it. That wisdom of the old paths is also found in the wisdom of old people. Those who are leading and directing. I want you to think of your own experience in your own life. I would hope you have experiences maybe of visiting with grandparents uh, or of some elderly within the church um, and, and having the benefit of learning from their lived experience, learning from their wisdom. For the years that we've had a widow's ministry uh, in college ministry and, and most recently with our own youth, I think you would hear them say it was fascinating to sit down with this older person and learned how they used to live, what life was really like, and the life lessons and the wisdom that they have to offer from their many years of lived experience. The same thing is true spiritually. The, the same thing is especially true in the church. This older generation that led us into having a faithful church, there is much to learn from them, from sitting at the feet of the elders, you might say. But in 2023, I would be remiss in all this if I didn't say that the PCA lost some strong elders. Tim Keller, Harry Reeder, Steve Smallman, and most recently Mark Lowry, who is a name that probably most of you don't know, but his memorial was yesterday. He was the key founder of Reformed University Fellowship. He was the architect and the engineer of RUF. He is the one who composed the philosophy of ministry that is now on 170 campuses in countless churches and church plants, churches even like our own, all influenced by this man named Mark Lowry. And so I say that because there are some giants who have fallen They're gone. Trees that have fallen in the wilderness. But the Lord will replace them with robust faith in new elders, new officers. So long as we are faithful to the Scriptures and true to the Reformed faith, we can expect that the Lord is going to continue to maintain the health and trajectory. We're to keep to the old paths. Stay on the path of wisdom, the proven path of wisdom. And then thirdly, the third piece of the motto, faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, the third aspiration of those who planted and started the PCA was that we would be a church that is obedient to the Great Commission. The Great Commission of Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is the great commission. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission that Christ gave His church. It's a mission that we're to keep. It's a message that we're to keep. And that is the hope of a church that would continue. And that's important language. The language of the PCA as it was birthed, and the vision was to be a continuing church. That is that we would continue on the old paths. We would continue in the way of faithfulness. Otherwise, we will disappear and exist and influence nothing. So the vision was to be a continuing church. A church with a legacy of faithfulness that would make a difference in the world. Of this, Ken Key said in his summary points of why a new church needed to be formed, he would say, we are concerned because the primary mission of the church, winning people to Jesus Christ and nurturing them in the faith, is being compromised today by overemphasis on social, economic, and political matters, neglecting the basics of gospel ministry. So the concern was drift in the practical work of ministry of the church. That the church had become defined by social ministry, but not gospel ministry. Not the preaching of the word and the seeking to convert the lost. It had just become externally oriented. Now what would lead to this division and the formation of a new church? Let me say this. We are Presbyterians. We are of a covenant promise-making theology. And the breaking of promises and the breaking of relationship is not to be easily done. It is not to be easily done. And so we've reached a point in this history where you have people saying, we think it may be time to separate, to break fellowship. You need to understand that that is not easily done. These men, that was not an easy decision. It was not desirable, but they had determined that it was necessary. Let me fill in those blanks and some questions you may have with some more context. There was concern for the youth in the church, which you know is a great passion and interest of mine. But it's articulated this way by Ken Keyes. In about 1970, denominational literature was produced that affirmed, think of this, think of your denomination putting this in print, that affirmed sexual promiscuity and experimentation among youth, saying that it was not sinful so long as there was not pregnancy. And then secondly, there was a denominational youth conference during Christmas break in Atlanta that had the youth of the denomination sing a truly blasphemous song that had previously been published by the National Council of Churches. 
I have the lyrics to the song in here, but I'm not even going to read them. They are that blasphemous. I'll show them to you later. But they had the youth of the church. Imagine going to Ridgehaven and having the youth singing songs of blasphemy about Jehovah. Unthinkable. And so that is the context where they had reached what they determined was an intolerable situation. So I want you to hear, these were not men who just got quickly disgruntled and said, let's jump ship and go start our own thing. That is not at all what happened for them. They had reached a breaking point. And the summary of that, and they're coming to conclusion, this is is Ken Keyes, he says this, how they could separate from one church to start another. He says, we feel that we can no longer be a part of a denomination in which the Board of Christian Education publishes literature which violates our confession of faith and encourages our young people to experiment with sex and with drugs. In a denomination in which the Board of World Missions no longer places its primary emphasis on carrying out the Great Commission. In a denomination with seminaries which train ministers who substitute social and political action for the preaching of the Word. In a denomination where presbyteries violate our Constitution by receiving ministers who refuse to affirm the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, and other fundamental doctrines, while denying membership to faithful ministers who stand firmly for these doctrines which they vowed to uphold. Especially do we feel that we can no longer subject our children and grandchildren to the kind of youth leaders that those in control have seen fit to place in these sensitive positions. Young radicals who seem determined to lead our young people away from their faith in God. And so they reached what they determined was a breaking point. To remain would be to to violate our vows as a church. It would be to fail to be the church we feel that we have promised to be. And so the very, very uncomfortable, difficult thing was done. They sought to begin a new church. It came at great cost. And I want to say this. Those first ministers who did the hard work of saying enough is enough, you do understand that the cost of that would be their own church buildings and their own pension. They did it at great personal cost, but they said it's got to be done. Let alone the fact that surely every day of their life was consumed with this subject and for years How many wives probably grew tired of hearing about it at home? How many children grew up hearing dad fighting the same fight over and over and over again? I bet it had its toll on their health and their well-being and their families. But they were determined to have a healthy, faithful church that will continue, that will last for the good of the nation and the states. We need to do this. We're going to do this. 
So what has resulted since then? And here's where we land the plane. What has resulted from that hard decision to be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, obedient to the Great Commission? Well, here's what has resulted. In 1973, when the new church was formed, there were 200 churches, 41,000 members. That was the birth of the new church. 200 churches, 41,000 members left the PCUS and declared the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. 50 years later, today, well, in 2023... That 200 churches is now 2,000 churches. The 41,000 members is now 400,000 members. And the denomination from which they left has withered. And we would say, because of the fruit of faithfulness to the Scriptures, being true to the Reformed faith, being obedient to the Great Commission... God is at work. God grew a new, young church that sought to be faithful. Now, outside of those numbers, Sean Michael Lucas reminds us, that's along with the largest Anglo-American mission force in the world, MTW, and the largest Reformed college ministry in the world, that is RUF. All of this came from that band of brothers who had faith to say, we might need to leave our church buildings. We might need to leave our pensions for the sake of a healthy church in the United States. Are we willing to do it? Are we serious about being faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, obedient to the Great Commission? If we are, we may have to do a hard thing. It may cost us personally. Now, you're sitting in a pew today that is the privilege and benefit of the Lord having worked through some men to do a hard thing. And maybe it really means something to you, or maybe it doesn't. But to have a church that is faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, obedient to the Great Commission, that is no small thing. That is no small thing at all. I don't know how you found GPC. But I know how I found GPC and my family found GPC 10 years ago. No, 13 and a half years ago now. It was because they were true to the Scriptures. Faithful to the Scriptures. True to the Reformed faith. Obedient to the Great Commission. They took the Gospel seriously. That was refreshing to our souls. And so my hope and my prayer in sharing all of this is not a history lesson, but it's to see how God has been at work and we're celebrating 50 years of having a denomination that Lord, the Lord really has blessed. It's been the, for the good of people. And we want that to continue. Now, how does that continue? Well, it continues if we remain faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, obedient to the Great Commission. Otherwise, we will drift. We will drift. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, which we heard earlier in our service. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. 
When we went through Hebrews this year, you heard this over and over again. Our tendency is to drift. We will drift. Every one of us will drift. Pastors will drift. Officers will drift. Members will drift. But we need an anchor in the old path of wisdom and truth that God has given us in His Word. And by God's grace alone, we will endure and pass on a faithful church a God-honoring, gospel-preaching church to the people who replace us. That's where my heart is. My heart is for a faithful church in Greenwood, South Carolina that outlasts me and goes into the future. Is that where your heart is? We're to do this together. That's what it means to be the church. What we have received... It has come by God's grace through men who paid a great cost. And we're thankful for that. It's God who's at work, not just those men and their efforts. It's God who has done this. But we've received something precious and beautiful. May God give us the grace to keep it going with a legacy of faithfulness. And that is despite everything that's coming, by the way. I'll close with this. The heat is going to turn up on the church. Not just this church, every church. Every Bible-believing church, the heat is turning up. The question is, will the church wilt under the heat? Will the church crumble when the pressure comes? The pressure of gender. The pressure of sexuality. The pressure of pronouns. The pressure of, of gender bathrooms. And ultimately, what the state will bring is tax-exempt status where some of us may financially be harmed and churches may not be able to call pastors. It's all coming. Everybody says it's, it's coming. And just as God called a previous generation to determine how much they believed what they said they believed, that it may cost them their pensions, it may cost them their church buildings, It may cost them their houses. Will we have in our own generation or the generation that follows us the boldness of faith to say, doesn't matter. We're going to be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. That's our hope. That's our prayer. It's our calling. It's what we've come from. And by God's grace, it's who we'll continue to be. Let's pray that that would be true. Lord, that is our prayer. We have inherited much from You and from Your servants that have gone before us. Lord, may we not drop the ball. May we not be lazy. May we not grow weary in doing good. May we keep to the old paths that have proven to be faithful and true. Lord, do this in us because we can't do it for ourselves. Do this in our children. Help us to make an influence where we live, where we work, that our church might grow through warm, welcoming invitations of others. And Lord, would Your Spirit be at work to produce disciples that believe these very things. We ask it, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.